0: Greetings, everybody. My name is Nick Bartunek, and I am the creative director for the Mountain View campus uh, at Highway. So what you're about to listen to today is a lecture by Dr. John Walton called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And uh, this lecture is a part of what we call the Walton Weekend, where we invite uh, Old Testament professor, uh Dr. John Walton to come and speak uh give some sermons give some lectures at our at our highway campuses. Um so this one in particular was uh held on a Monday night. It was really more a lecture and less of a sermon. Um and Dr. John Walton was talking about um Adam and Eve uh about uh, interpreting scripture specifically in Genesis which is a book of the Bible that there's a lot of controversy around. Things seem to be very polarized around the issue of origin and creation, evolution. Um, And so he he addresses some of that, but specifically talking about the book of Genesis and interpretation of Scripture uh, through the lens of the ancient Near East culture and the, the mindset of the peoples at that time. It's a very interesting lecture um, and definitely brought a lot of people out, which was which was great to see. So just uh, a couple quick notes. Dr. John Walton uh, is the professor of Old Testament studies at Wheaton College. Um, he was a professor at Moody Bible Institute for about 20 years, and he's also uh, involved with the BioLogos um, organization. Many of you probably heard about BioLogos. If you want to find out more about what uh, BioLogos is, you can head to BioLogos.org and I'm sure that website will do a much better explanation th- than I can. Uh, just a quick note about the lecture. Uh, it lasted about maybe an hour and a half and at the very end, there was a QA and a section. Unfortunately, uh, the the recording device did not, was not able to record all of the Q&A. So it's going to cut off abruptly. Don't be alarmed. Uh, the, that's just the unfortunate reality for this lecture. However, I was able to capture some of that If you do have questions yourself, you want to know more about the lecture series, about Walton Weekend, or just simply about Highway, you can uh, head to www.highway.org to find out any information. If you'd like to get in touch with a particular staff member or uh you you're already attending highway and you want to reach out in regards to to walton weekend or this lecture uh feel free to to touch base with any of the staff members or if you just want to make it easy you can reach out to me and i'll pass a word along to them Uh, you can reach me at nick n-i-k at highway.org so without further ado here is the lost world of adam and eve by dr john walton
1: Welcome. Come on in, find a seat. Uh, we're really glad that you could be with us this evening. Uh, I'm Dean Smith. I'm the pastor of, senior pastor of the highway community. We've been enjoying Walton weekend. So, for some of us, this is the third or fourth time that we've heard John this weekend, which is uh, about the third or fourth time that we've had him come and do this. And it uh, just never gets old listening to John. And uh, it's always intriguing and stimulating. So, I'm glad that you've taken a Monday night to come tonight uh, for. Uh, a a seminar, a lecture on uh, the lost world of Adam and Eve. If you don't know John, John is a professor at Wheaton College Graduate School, and uh, he's the author of more books than I don't know if he knows how many books How many books have you written, John? 20, yeah? (laughs) Three lost world books and, and so forth. Many of you have probably read the lost world of Genesis 1, and hopefully also the lost world of Adam and Eve, and that's we'll be looking at uh, tonight but uh this is this would be a great opportunity for you to just to be challenged in your thinking as we look at scripture together um, with a person who is truly a master of ancient near eastern culture and so uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get going let's pray father in heaven we are so grateful for the scriptures that you have provided for us for life and for faith and father we're grateful for those who are gifts to the church more broadly like john uh, who can come and help us to understand uh, some of the complex issues that are there as we, try to, as we try to understand an ancient book and apply it to our lives today. Father, we're thankful for John and for Kim and uh, just for coming across the country and being with us. I pray for John as he speaks tonight. I pray that his voice holds out and uh, that uh, he's able to uh, really use his voice as he shares this with us. Um, But we're thankful for him and pray that you'd continue to bless his ministry. So thank you again uh, for this time that we have tonight uh, to reflect again on the the richness of your word. And Father, may we understand it with more clarity as a result of our time together tonight. Thank you for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Without any further ado, let's welcome Dr. John Walton.
2: Good evening, I must apologize ahead of time, right from the get-go, for the horrible breach of protocol. I'm fighting a cold and so I've got my tissues up here and my trash can. I got a handheld mic so I can cough like that. So I'm sorry um, to subject you to all of that, but that's, uh, that's how it is. So hopefully things will go all right as we move along. We're dealing with a very controversial issue. Um, I don't know if, if many of you, was anybody here maybe three or four years ago when I did Genesis 1? Was anybody here for that? A few people were, okay. Um, that's controversial enough. I uh, get talking about Genesis 1 and what's going on there and the age of the earth and those kinds of questions. Uh, but those really pale in significance to the conversation about human origins. Lots of people say, oh, I'm not too worried about the age of the earth material, but but human origins, now that's, that's an issue. So, of course, I had to try to do what I could with it, and that's what I'll be talking about tonight. It's controversial because this is one of the key areas where we get feeling like science and the Bible are saying contradictory things. And of course, that always gets us a little bit disturbed. Uh, Because scientists often seem like they know what they're talking about, and lots of us trust science in lots of different ways. You know, every time you go to your doctor, you know, we we trust science in lots of different ways. But at the same time, if we feel like what science is telling us is running counter to what the Bible is telling us, obviously we we say, oh boy, now, now I don't know quite how to handle this. And lots of us feel strongly enough about the Bible that we're willing to kind of put that in the driver's seat. Uh, but then we don't know what to do with all the science. And so w- this creates a little bit of a, a problem for us. Now, uh, as, as I mentioned uh, last time I was here, as I say every time I talk about this, uh, I'm not coming here with a, an agenda for science. I don't have a scientific position I'm trying to promote. I'm not gonna argue for the science one way or the other. That's not my topic and it's not my specialty. So that's not what we're going to be doing tonight. I wanna talk about the Bible side of the equation because if we're gonna get to the point where we feel like the Bible and science are making mutually exclusive claims, we better make sure we know what the Bible's claims are. And that's where I come in, that's what I do. Uh, I'm really not a theologian, I'm not a scientist, of course, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a philosopher, there's lots of things I'm not. Uh, But I am a text analyst, it's what I do. And that's what we're gonna work on tonight, to understand the text of Genesis and what its claims are. Only after we have some sense that we know what the claims are, can we then step back and decide whether those claims are working counter to what claims are being made from the scientific side of the thing. So that gives you an idea of what we're doing tonight. As always, when I do this material, we have to start out with uh, the most important foundation, the authority of scripture. Uh, Any of you who have heard me before, any of the times I've been here, know how dearly I hold the authority of scripture. It's a foundation for everything that I do. Uh, But it's one thing to say, well, yes, I believe in the authority of Scripture, but to talk about what do we mean by that? You know, how, how does that sit for us? And what we believe when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we believe that God has a purpose in communication. God has decided to communicate, to reveal himself. And he has chosen to do that through human intermediaries, whether we call them authors or narrators or compilers or whatever, but he's chosen to use human intermediaries. And therefore, if we want to get to God's purpose, we have to go through the intermediaries that he chose to use because they have been vested with the authority of God. And so God's meaning is to be found in the human author's meaning. Now, that creates a little bit of a difficulty for us because, of course, these authors lived long ago in a different culture and spoke a different language. And so we are confronted with the difficulty that the Bible is written for us. We all believe that, but that it's not written to us. Again, any of you have heard me talk before, you've heard me say that. It's almost become a hallmark. Uh, And so that's how it stands. The Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us because the human author spoke a different language and a different culture to a different sort of audience. And that means that if we are going to benefit as fully as we possibly can from that message, we have a task, we have to try to take our place in his audience. We have to move to him. He's not going to move to us. The biblical authors did not anticipate us. Certainly God did, but remember, we're talking about a human author. God communicated to a human author, and that human author did not anticipate us, does not know the things that concern us, does not know the issues of our day, Is not would not even know what we meant to talk about evolution, it, none of it. We have to go to him. We can't imagine that he is speaking to the details of our situation. Now this is the method that we use and it's really how authority works. Authority can't be tied into something other than what the author intended. Because then we would say, how do we get to that authority? Okay, so that's how we're proceeding. Now, when we look at the Bible in its ancient Near Eastern world, uh, some of you were, were here on Saturday morning uh, when I talked about the metaphor of the cultural river. I like to think of, the, of a cultural river in the ancient world that kind of holds all of the elements of how they thought. You know, if we talked about our cultural river today, we would have things like uh, individualism freedom, rights, uh, the tolerance, uh, the um, capital economy, market economy rather, capitalism, consumerism, all of those are part of our cultural river. But that's our cultural river. In the ancient world, it's a very different cultural river. In the ancient world, they think very differently than we do. And Israel is part of that cultural river. They're embedded in the ancient world. And sometimes they're just floating along with that cultural river, thinking the same things that the people around them think. Maybe it's something like corporate identity, corporate solidarity, really, really big in the ancient world. Um, Other times, maybe they've kind of stepped out of that river because there's something that God has helped them see that's different from that. Other times they might be thrashing wildly, swimming upstream against that. And we have the same thing. Even as Christians, there are things in our cultural river that we choose not to partake in, but lots of times we're just drifting along. So if we use this metaphor of a cultural river, um, we have to recognize that Israel is not in our cultural river. The Bible is not written against the backdrop of our cultural river. And so we've got to do portage, pick up our boats, portage across the dry land, get to the other river and get into that one. So that's what we're all about. So we're going to be using information from the ancient Near East because that's the context that Israel worked in. So despite that, we do not just blindly import the ancient Near East into the Bible but rather we're going to notice things in the Bible that find correlation in the ancient Near East. So we don't just impose it blindly. The ancient Near Eastern texts, like many other things, can prompt us, make suggestions to us, help us to see things that we might not have thought of. And then, lo and behold, we'd find the same thing in the biblical text, okay? So it can help us to think about the text differently just gives us another source of information. And so the ancient Near Eastern texts become windows, windows into that world. Glass bottom boats in the cultural river. Okay, I'm pushing the metaphor too far, okay? (laughs) But you get the idea, okay? And they can help us to understand how people thought in the ancient world. There's a lot of information in these ancient texts. We have over a million cuneiform texts. That's a lot of information. Now, that still doesn't mean that we can perfectly reconstruct what ancient people thought like, but it sure gives us a good leg up on it so that we can start to understand some of those things. So we want to avoid anachronism. See, there, lots of people think if we can, if we, why can't we just pick up the Bible and read it simply for what it is? Wouldn't that be wonderful? The problem is you never read the anything Bible included, culture-free. You've always got your cultural lenses on, he you can't help it. And so you never read it culture-free. And therefore, what we, when we're doing something that feels like we're just reading it simply what's on the surface, we may actually be reading it very differently from how an ancient audience would have read it. So we have to be careful what might seem simple to us only seems simple to us because it's our cultural river and we haven't made the adjustment. So we want to avoid anachronism. We don't want to read our cultural river into the text. That's, a, that's an imposition on the text and potentially a distortion. When we think about Bible and science then, we have to be aware of what we're doing because the science, anything we have regarding science is our cultural river. There there is no science like our modern science in their cultural river. Let me give you an example of that. When we talk about um, our world, we divide it very neatly into things that we call natural. Natural laws, natural science, natural cause and effect, natural revelation. We have have this whole category which is natural, which means that we can use science to demonstrate it, to support it, scientific laws, things of that sort. And so we have that category, natural. And then we have this category, uh, those who believe in God and God's action, they call supernatural. And supernatural are the things that science can't explain that God is doing directly, not through the normal processes. And we call that supernatural. It's not a bad system. We all think that way. We think that way when we use words like intervention. Because intervention assumes that God is outside, letting things happen. And then he steps inside and does something that wouldn't have happened by itself, by itself. Even the word miracle. Miracle is a word that doesn't work unless you have this natural supernatural divide Because then you call something a miracle, and you're saying that's supernatural And you could never explain that by natural laws or natural cause and effect This is the way we think in our world And we've thought this way since a couple hundred years ago This is a fairly new kind of division, relatively speaking. Now, I'm not a philosopher, and the philosophers could help trace all of that history. And you can find trickles of this back further. But my point is, in the ancient world, they did not think that way. There is no natural-supernatural divide in the ancient world. And it's not like some people in our world that would say, everything's natural. There is no supernatural. It's the other way. In their minds, God was doing everything. There was nothing natural. They didn't have anything like natural laws or natural cause and effect, no natural science. They have no category. They believed God was involved in everything. God was just as much involved in the the most natural thing that you could name as he was in the most supernatural thing that you could name. God's involvement was no different. As a result, when they talk about God doing things, they're not insisting that it must qualify, in our way of thinking, as supernatural. They can't be insisting on that if they don't have that category. So that's one of the ways in which the ancient world, Israel included, things very differently than we do, but it makes a big difference here because the minute we start making that distinction between natural and supernatural, we've changed cultural rivers. But we have to make that distinction in order to do science. And as a result, we can say that the Israelites are not doing anything like science today, which is dependent on the natural category. Because that's where science works. Uh, There we go. So as a result, in the Bible, the observation of natural cause and effect doesn't remove God from the picture. Psalm 139, 13, "You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Every birth. Every time, every one of us, everyone that ever lived, God knits them together in their mother's womb. That's not trying to say that that there's no possibility of explaining this through natural science means. Again, the Bible simply doesn't make those categories. There is no scientific revelation in the Bible then because they're never talking about things in terms of natural causes and effects or natural laws. And God never upgrades how they understand science. He rather talks to them in terms of what they already understood. So I've got heart there in the parentheses. In the ancient world, they had no idea of the physiology of the brain, no clue what it did. Likewise, they had no idea of the physiology of the kidney or the liver. But in their thinking, it was the kidney and the liver and the heart and the stomach that were responsible for things that we know belong to the physiology of the brain. So They believed all of the cognitive and intellectual and um, volitional, all of those things were connected to the entrails. It's wrong, but they didn't know any better. That's all they had. And God didn't change it. God didn't try to give them up, an upgrade in physiology. He talked to them about believing with your heart and thinking with your heart. For us, that's a metaphor. For them, it wasn't. It was physiology, They they had known the word or knew what that meant. But it was they really thought things worked that way. And God doesn't change it. He doesn't change their views of cosmic geography. He doesn't change their views of physiology. He doesn't change their views of meteorology. He doesn't change their views of anything that we would put in the sciences categories. He communicates to them where they are because he's not revealing science. That being the case, we have to be very careful when we start thinking that the Bible is making a scientific claim. The Bible doesn't do science, and yet lots of times we take statements from the Bible and read them as if they are scientific claims, to the point, of course, tonight, particularly with regard to human origins. So we have to be careful about how we approach this material. And remember, we have to understand the Bible for what it is. Or we are not respecting its authority. So Genesis 2 and 3, let's move into this material. If we're not out of time yet. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> okay, let's start out with the word Adam. Adam, Hebrew word, means humankind. Uh, it occurs 34 times as you see in Genesis 1 through 5 so pretty frequently but it occurs in a couple of different kinds of contexts. Sometimes it occurs with the definite article and sometimes without the definite article. So without the definite article uh, in those cases it could be a personal name. Uh, in Hebrew they do not use personal uh, they do not use a definite article on personal names. you know a definite article in English is the They they don't do that. Uh, We don't in English either, except the Donald, of course, but (laughs) (laughs) let's not even go there. (laughs) So without the definite article, it can be a personal name, and you can see the passages up there. They they only come late in this section. Uh, But also notice, uh, these are not their historical names, really. Eve did not call Adam, Adam, and Adam did not call Eve, Eve. I'd go for honey and sweetie, but uh, I can't prove it. But how do I know that? I know that because those are Hebrew words. And nobody spoke Hebrew until Hebrew became existent as a language, which was about the middle of the second millennium BC, about the time of Moses, probably a little later. Even Moses probably didn't speak or write the Hebrew that we actually have in the Bible. So certainly nobody before Moses spoke Hebrew, and certainly Adam and Eve did not speak Hebrew. Therefore, even though I believe that Adam and Eve are real people in a real past, their names are not Adam and Eve. These are not their historical names These are given names by Hebrew writers. If they're given names rather than historical names, we have to ask what was going on in the giving of them. These are selected names given to them. Therefore, the names have a significance beyond the people that they're attached to. These are names that describe something archetypal. Now I'm gonna talk about archetypal more as we go along here, but that's, this is our initial launch into that kind of idea. So keep that, we have to finish this slide. Four times Adam is used to refer to humanity generically. Just humankind, Adam can mean that. And that would not have the definite article as we have in these cases. When it does have the definite article, um, then again, it talks about hmm, not a particular human as much as uh, an archetypal individual. And that's almost every time in Genesis 2.7 through 3.24. It almost always has the definite article in those locations. Again, that tells you that something else is going on rather than just, this happens to be the guy's name. Well, it happens not to be the guy's name, and with a definite article, you'd never think it was the guy's name. So, there's another level here that we don't pick up if we're just reading on the surface. Now, another factor that we have to look at besides the use of the the names is the relationship between Genesis one and Genesis two. Again, when we're just reading right through, we read about human beings uh, being created on day six, and then we read about Adam and Eve, and we assume, assume, and it is an assumption, that Adam and Eve are the people in day six. That chapter two, is an elaboration, a recapitulation of day six telling you more detail about what happened there. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I would warrant most everybody in the room has always thought that's what chapter two is. But chapter one does not name Adam and Eve. Chapter one does not indicate that there are only two people. Chapter one says God created Adam, humankind and male and female, and made them in his image, and they're all in his image. It doesn't tell you how many there were, and it doesn't necessarily connect to Adam and Eve. But you might say, if if chapter one is other people, number one, where are they? Because all we ever hear about is Adam and Eve here at the front. And number two, if there are other people, then what significance would Adam and Eve have? Now see, isn't this cool? Now we're asking questions that we never thought to ask five minutes ago. And asking questions is key to interpretation. Now, one of the ways we can try to explore the relationship between chapter two and chapter one is to take a good close look at this literary introduction. It comes in Genesis 2:4, so it separates the two accounts. And it says this is the account, that's the Hebrew word toledot, of the heavens and the earth. Now, this is really important because this literary introduction, this type of literary introduction, a toledot, occurs 10 more times in Genesis. It is the structural feature in the book of Genesis. And therefore, we get 10 more shots at trying to see what is the relationship between the stuff before the Toledot and the stuff after the Toledot. 10 times we get to look at it. And then we can use that information to inform how Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 relate to each other. So here's the chart. That's all the places where it occurs. And you can see at the transitionary point at which it occurs on the chart, and you can see the relationship between what is before the Toledot and what is after the Toledot. You can see that it falls into two categories. Typically, they're either a sequel or a recursive. Sequel, of course, is obvious enough. It's what, it's the next Star Wars movie. No, I mean, it's what comes after, okay, the previous account, okay? Recursive means that it's backing up in order to cover some uh, different territory. Uh, That only happens when it's brothers. So the text will follow Ishmael, and then there's this recursion. It comes back, instead of going to a sequel, what comes after Ishmael? It comes back and picks up Isaac. It's not telling Ishmael's story again. Now it's telling Isaac's story, but they're contemporaries, they're brothers. Okay, but now it's gonna follow Isaac's story. That happens when we've got brothers involved, recursion. But other times, it's always a sequel. What's interesting to note is that none of these are recapitulative. In no case does the one after the Toledot recapitulate and explain in more detail something that came before the Toledot. Now that doesn't mean it can't. It just says that given 10 shots, 11 shots, it doesn't. And therefore, it would not be our first guess to say that this is recapitulative. Our first guess, since it's not brothers, would be to say that it's a sequel. Now, if it's a sequel, then you say, well, if it's a sequel, that, that means that those people in chapter one are not necessarily Adam and Eve. And you say, okay, wow. Did, but there are no other people. Where, where Where are these other people? Well, don't be so hasty. Chapter 4, Cain finds a wife. Maybe you've liked the sister idea, but I I was never crazy about it. (laughs) But it goes on. When Cain is about to be driven from the garden, not from the garden, from God's presence, Cain says, you can't do this to me. Now everybody who finds me will kill me or want to kill me or try to kill me. Who's he talking about? Mom, is that you? Dad, come on, stop it. Oh, ouch, okay. What do we think? Then he builds a city. You can't build a city for yourself. That's not a city, it's a man cave. (laughs) I don't know the Hebrew word for that. So there are, there are hints in the text that there are other people around. Also, of course, there are some benefits to not having to squeeze chapter 2 into day 6. I mean, naming all the animals? Really? Big job. Um, How are we fitting all that in? I mean, sun's going down and we're still only halfway through the 55,000 species of beetles. Can't we just call them all beetle? You know, I've already used up John, Paul, and George. I'm running out of names. Just let that one sink in. Okay. So there, there are certain things that lead us away from this idea that Adam and Eve are the people in day six. So we have to look at this whole thing again. Try to understand chapter two as best we're able to. Now my proposal to you is that, again, I've used this term a couple times already, that we're dealing with archetypal functions. That is, I'm suggesting that everything in Genesis two regarding human origins, that's the qualifier. Is first and foremost archetypal in nature. Now, what do I mean by archetype? I'm not talking about just a literary archetype. Some of you have studied literature, things of that sort. You know, there's this kind of literary archetype. There's the villain. There's the hero. There's the damsel in distress. There's the Gandalf. Oh no, okay. But there's you know, there's certain categories. You know, and I'm not talking about that. Um, I'm likewise not talking about just a a prototype. Uh, A prototype is the first one in a series. So when the uh, car makers are ready to kind of do a a new model and they set up the assembly line, the first one that rolls off the line is a prototype. Okay, but it just happens to be the first off the line. In an archetype, there's there's an embodiment of, of everything in the in the same category, or are unembodied in this one. So for an example, I've got mothers up there. I was browsing around on the internet for something or other, and I ran into this site where an interviewer was talking to second graders and asked them, what are mothers made of? Now in that question, he's not asking about what your particular individual mother is made of, but what are mothers made of? Class act here, okay? What are mothers made of? And it's interesting that the the second graders got it right away. They didn't have to be explained. We're talking about archetypes here. And so, okay, they didn't, they had real mothers, flesh and blood mothers, but they knew that that wasn't the nature of the question. So they respond with archetypal sorts of answers. One little girl said, Mothers are made of butterfly wings and clouds and string and a little bit of mean. (laughs) Now it's interesting, she not only understood that the question was archetypal in nature, she also identified these so-called ingredients archetypally because those ingredients are saying something about the identity of mothers. And it's not just her own mother, although certainly that played into it, but this, what are mothers all about? And these ingredients talk about identity. Don't go biology on me here, okay? A little dissection, we'll find some butterfly wings. You know, no. And so, that's what we mean by archetypal Um, there is something here about the identity of the class and there's an embodiment of all in the one so that's what I'm suggesting with Adam and Eve pertaining to human origins the forming accounts then I would suggest are most relevant to Adam and Eve as archetypes rather than as individuals. Again, let me emphasize, I do believe they are individuals, real people in a real past. But the forming accounts isn't talking about that, just like that little girl wasn't talking about just her mother, even though she had one. Now you'd say, how would we know? How would we have any idea whether it's referring to an archetype Or to an individual, wouldn't you just kind of make it up? Isn't it circular reasoning? Nope, we'll look to the text. We're gonna look to the text and see what we find. And here's the criteria. It can be identified as archetypal if it refers to everyone, not just to those individuals. If what we find in the text is something that is true of all human beings, then it's archetypal, because that's what an archetype is, rather than referring just to those individuals. So again, we've got a criteria that we can use, and we're going to apply it. So formed from dust. Lots of people read this, and one of the first things they might think about, since we're in our cultural river, is they think chemistry. Okay. So they'll start looking at the chemical composition of dust and the chemical composition of the human body and look for overlaps between the two and decide whether it's a legitimate chemical statement to say that humans are made of dust. Well, it's an interesting experiment and an intriguing conversation, but it can't possibly represent what the biblical text is doing. They don't know chemistry. They're not talking chemistry. They wouldn't know what chemistry was. Their periodic table is very small. Oh, they don't have one. So that's not what they're talking about. That can't be what the author intended. Remember, there's where our authority is. Authority is in the author's intention because God did it that way. Other people, more likely, are more inclined to treat this in terms of craftsmanship. Here's God down on his knees, getting his hands dirty, forming this this man that he's going to breathe the breath of life into. And so we have this craftsmanship idea. Well, it could make enough sense if the text talked about clay, but it doesn't. It talks about dust and you can't shape dust. That's how dust is different from clay. If craftsmanship were going to be the point, then it would use something like clay. But it doesn't. So that leaves us a little bit stranded. If it's not chemistry and it's not craftsmanship, what is it? What's going on? Well, we can fortunately look to the text to tell us. Because just by the next chapter it tells us precisely what the significance of dust is because it tells us that dust you are and to dust you shall return dust pertains to their mortality now that would be easy enough to spot in the text but the problem is we don't want to see it there we don't want to think that. We think that that's just a blind alley because we're persuaded that Paul tells us that people were created immortal. After all, Paul says we're all subject to death because of sin. Seems pretty clear. And therefore, there couldn't have been death before sin because we are subject to death because of sin. And therefore, if there was no death before sin, we were created immortal, case closed, conversation over. But wait, is that really how we're supposed to be reading Paul there? Has Paul never read Genesis? Of course he's read Genesis. Okay? And what do we find out when we read Genesis? We find out that in this garden where God put Adam and Eve, he put a couple other special things. He put two trees, important ones in the middle, and one of them is a tree of life. Think about it. Immortal people don't need a tree of life. Wow, that's a waste of a tree. If they were immortal, they wouldn't need a tree of life. That means something else is going on there because Paul is not ignorant of this. So what happened? What's going on? Well, you know the story well enough. They're put in the garden. They're told not to eat of the tree of wisdom, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they eat from that tree, and in that disobedience and in that sin, they're cast from the presence of God. And there's a guardian, a cherub. That, that's not the pudgy little Valentine babies. Don't go there, okay? The cherub in the ancient world was a fearsome hybrid guardian creature really nasty okay so there's there's serious protection put to prevent them from getting to the tree of life so what's paul talking about well what happened what happened was that when they sinned they no longer had access to the remedy the antidote to their mortality. They were mortal, they were dust. But they had access, God provided a remedy. But then they sinned, and they forfeited access to the remedy, and therefore they were doomed to die. And so, as Paul says, we are all subject to death because of sin we wouldn't be subject to it if we had a tree of life. Okay, a little bit different read. But again, dust as mortality is fairly clear in the text. And we can see now how Paul would have read this passage. Now look at this one, Psalm 103. For he knows how we are formed. He knows that we are dust. You can see formed, dust, we're dealing with Genesis 2-7, same terminology. But there's something a little bit unusual here, something that we must take note of. I'll pause and let you look at it for a second. find it look at the pronoun we we are formed from dust all of us are formed from dust every human being is formed from dust I didn't make it up the bible says it Paul says it. Got to love it. Paul agrees. (laughs) The first man was of dust, and all—all are from dust. Being formed from dust, therefore, being formed from dust, does not describe material formation. Doesn't for any of you. You're all formed from dust, and you were all born of woman. Born of woman is your material formation, but you're formed from dust anyway, because that's your identity. That's not your material formation. Being formed from dust does not describe material formation. And being formed from dust, therefore, would not preclude being born of a woman. And just because Adam is identified as being formed from dust does not mean that he was not born of a woman. What does the Bible claim? Formed from dust is not a material origins claim. It is an identity claim. Frail mortality and it's what all of us are characterized by. So it is archetypal because it does not just refer to him, it refers to all of us. So it's not a statement, a claim about our material origin, but about our identity. It's what all humans are not what Adam uniquely is. That's not what distinguishes Adam from the rest of us. And it's not making a scientific claim about biological material origins. That's not in their cultural river. Isn't this fun? Oh, now we're going to get to the woman's side of the equation. Okay, does Adam believe that Eve is formed from his rib? And you're saying, that sounds like such an obvious answer that I just know it can't be what I think it is. You're right. No, he doesn't. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. What are the very first words out of Adam's mouth? Bone of my bone, and he didn't stop there. Flesh of my flesh. What's up with that? There's a whole lot more than a rib going on here. So we better take a look at the words. Any good text analyst would do this. You got to take a look at the word and what it means. So let's go to a good concordance, easy to do, find all the occurrences of this particular Hebrew word when it refers to anatomy to see if we can get some clarification on this, okay? So let's take a look at all the occurrences where this word refers to anatomy. Ready? We're done. This is the only one. Ouch. How do we know what this word means? Remember, some of you have heard me say this before, we only know what Hebrew words mean by their usage. Moses did not leave us a dictionary. So we have to consider usage. Now, this word does not occur, referring to anatomy, but it does occur in other kinds of contexts specifically architectural. And it occurs architecturally, this side of the altar, that side of the altar, this side of the temple, that side of the temple, pertaining to a pair, two sides, when there are two. That suggests that rib is not correct. Side is more to the point. And by the way, some of your translations will have that down at the foot of the page, because they know this problem. Side is more to the point. Maybe it could be like a side of beef, bones and flesh, right? Rack of ribs. I mean, we got all kinds of possibilities here, but we won't play them out, okay? So, what's going on here? When we take a look at what's going on, we have to do it in light of this Deep sleep. Now we've inclined to think that God extracted a rib, so Adam's in a deep sleep, so God must have put him under anesthesia, more or less, to do the surgical procedure, cultural river. They're not thinking surgery. They're not thinking anesthesia. That's nothing like anything that they know. We have to think in their world, not ours. So we ask the question, how does the biblical text use this idea of a deep sleep? Great question. There are two different ways that a deep sleep occurs. Two different contexts, I should say. One of them is when there's danger looming, Jonah's Deep sleep in the bottom of the boat when the boat's being tossed on the storm and ready to overturn. Uh, Saul is in a deep sleep. In fact, his whole army is when David creeps in with a couple of his men and picks up the spear that's in the ground at Saul's head and could put an end to him. Danger is looming. When Sisera, uh, the Canaanite general fighting Deborah and Barak in the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5, uh, he's had to flee the battlefield. He flees to the tent of someone he thinks is an ally. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, is not there, but his wife, Yael, is there. And she invites him in. You know, the story he gives him a nice cup of warm milk. He's exhausted from the battle. Here, lay down. Let me cover you up with a blanket. And everything's looking just great. And he falls into a deep sleep. Next thing you know, Yeah, hammer and tent peg, right? Side of the head, boom, boom. For those of you who've heard me talk before, that's another temple story. Anyway, um, so, incorrigible, I know, I know. Now that's one way that a deep sleep occurs in context. Danger, you know, there's there's a looming problem. Now that's not the one that works very well in the context here. You know, woman on the floor. You know, there's danger. There's woman coming along. Now that's not really what it means here. So we have to look at the other one. The other one is uh, when the deep sleep is used for a visionary state. We find this uh, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He's cut the animals in half in a deep sleep. The torch and the censer pass between the pieces and the covenant is ratified. Fairly significant undertaking, all taking place when he's in a deep sleep. We have a couple of other occurrences, I've got them up there. So, given the context, that seems the more likely here. That is, Adam is in a deep sleep because he is going to be shown something in a vision that is of great significance. That means that this is not surgery taking place. We've already talked about the idea that it's not a rib that's being taken. He's being cut in half. That would be fairly radical surgery. He's being cut in half, and half of him is being formed into a woman. Presumably the better half, we know that. And so he sees this in a vision because that's going to communicate to him the identity of woman. And I don't mean her name. What is woman? She's the other half of you. Remember, he's just gone through naming the animals, trying to find an animal that's something like him. And woman is not just another animal. It's not, this is is just like him. So this is an important point to make about the identity of woman and the relationship between man and woman. And of course, that's what the text goes on to identify, this inherent relationship. And I'd love to talk about that verse more, but time flies, so I'm just gonna move on. Now, what is it then that distinguishes Adam and Eve? If there were people before, and I haven't said there for sure are, but we're just considering that as a possibility, if there are other people around, well, then how are Adam and Eve any different to warrant this kind of attention? Well, the text actually tells us in Genesis 2.15, it uses the, the description that Adam is placed in the garden to serve and keep. Sometimes we tend to think that those are landscaping, you know, groundworking kinds of tasks. Uh, but these terms um, are also, and both of them together primarily, priestly terms. Remember, the garden is not just green space, the garden is sacred space. God is there, God's presence is among his people. He's in relationship with Adam and Eve. Any of you who listened to the sermons yesterday heard me talk about that. Okay, so this is sacred space, and Adam and Eve are placed in the garden with priestly roles. So the text describes to us how Adam and Eve have been selected out. If there are a lot of other people around, again, we don't know that for sure. But if there are, Adam and Eve are chosen from among them for a special task. The Bible works that way a lot. We call it election. We have Abram and we have the Israelites. We have the Levites and the priests. This happens all the time. And even when we talk about our relationship to Christ, election is a term that we use. So this is a fairly consistent biblical theme. And that Adam and Eve would be chosen for that priestly task. So Eve is to help Adam. That word help me refers to an ally in a task. They are representatives, not archetypes here. All humanity is not priests, they are. So this is representation, but it's not archetypal representation, okay? So the two are different from another, and we have to recognize that. I think yeah, okay. So think of priests, you would say, well, wait a minute, Adam and Eve aren't, aren't making sacrifices. No, they don't have to. I mean, we're a royal priesthood, Peter tells us, but we're not making sacrifices. Okay, so this is priests the same way Israel is priests, mediating knowledge of God, mediating access to God's presence. It's a larger and more significant priestly role. So, trying to sum this up. If the details of the forming apply to the archetypes, then we have no information about the forming of the individuals. The forming account we have is archetypal, and it deals with identity. It is not biological, dealing with material formation. The archetypal identity does not negate the existence of the individual. Again I insist that Adam and Eve are individuals, real people in a real past. But you can still talk about them as archetypes, Paul does. He talks about them as archetypes. Abram is an archetype, but he really existed, okay? So that's not the issue there. The appropriate question then is not, is this really what happened? It's not a material formation history, but is this what people really are? If the archetypal issue deals with identity, then that's the question we ask. We find now that when we take this archetypal idea, which I developed in the biblical text itself, we can go back to the ancient Near East and find that every account of human origins in the ancient Near East from Egypt to Babylon all the way through is archetypal. They talk about ingredients that are archetypal. They deal with human beings who are archetypes. This is typical in the ancient world. I don't have to force that onto the Bible. I showed you how I got it from the Bible itself. But no surprise, it fits what's in their cultural river. So let's summarize what the message, if this is about identity, archetypes is about identity. If that's what's going on, what have we learned? We've learned about human identity that is created with mortal bodies. This is who we all are, we're mortal. We've learned about relationship identity, relationship with God. That is, we have representatives serving in sacred space. Ontological identity, that is, Adam notices that the animals are not the same as him. So that differentiation. And then gender identity, divided into male and female and would seek out new family relationships. These are all important theological issues, and we miss them if we think the passage is talking about biology. So how should we think? We should recognize, of course, that the Bible's claims have to be studied carefully. We should be willing to recognize that different people might analyze the text differently and arrive at different conclusions. But what's important is whether they are interpreting faithfully. Faithful interpreters will not always arrive at the same conclusions. But just because someone arrives at a different conclusion, that doesn't make them wrong or to be cast out. Acceptance of science, in this case, acceptance of the science of human origins does not require rejection of the Bible or faith. Now as a final point, let me make, uh, make sure that we understand what is really at issue at the core of this conversation. What well, we have to recognize, the key theological point, God has made us more than what he made us from. Notice there's no question that God is the one who made us. Whatever we're made from, God's the one who made us. And some people think that we were made directly from dust, whatever its chemical composition, and if that's so, God has made us more than dust. Some people think that we're made, God God made us from a line of primates, same thing. If that's the case, God has made us more than what he has made us from. Other people think in terms of amino acids in a primordial soup. God has made us more than what he made us from. No matter what you think the biology is, the theology is the most significant part Biology is trivial, sorry biologists, I like you, I like what you do, but that's trivial in this matter. The biological details are just that. This principle of theology can be seen clearly in other parts of scripture. Think of Israel's identity. Deuteronomy 23.5 says, "'Your father was a wandering Aramean.'" Ezekiel 16, talks about your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. (coughs) Those are the ethnic credentials, the ethnic history of Israel. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they came from. God's made them more. By choosing them, he made them more than what they are made from. And of course, we also find that that is true with ourselves, our identity in Christ. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, some of you were murderers and adulterers and robbers and thieves, but God took you out of that and he has made you more than that. And he's done that for all of us because such were some of us. And so God has made us more than what we were. The past is the past. We are now in Christ, and there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, because God has given us a new identity. This is about identity, and that's what Genesis is about, identity. So that's how we have to think about these issues. I've suggested some ways that we can try to understand the biblical claims. Some of you might agree with me. Some of you might not. Both of those are normal. (laughs) And that's okay. This isn't something we have to decide tonight, but it's something that we have to think about seriously and make sure that we understand what claims are being made in the Bible. And it may not be the kind of thing that you're ready to change your mind on. Maybe you're kind of content with where you are, you think you're reading things, fine, that's fine. I'm not trying to tell you, you know, you're wrong and you have to change. But the fact is, you probably are gonna have some loved ones at some point or other, a friend, a son, a granddaughter, whatever it might be, and they're gonna decide that they think that science sounds pretty convincing. And at that point, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? I hope that you'll remember some of these options so that you can give them an alternative that keeps them soundly in the faith instead of feeling like if they accept the science, they have to throw their Bibles away and reject Jesus. So maybe this isn't for you, but it might be for someone that you love. It's worth thinking about. Maybe the controversy isn't what we thought it was. Thank you very much.
1: You made it pretty good. Not too bad. All right. Now we're going to, we're going to open the floor for your questions. And so if you have a question for Dr. Walton, invite you to come up to the microphone and uh, share that with all of us and he'll respond to your questions.
2: And let me just lay down a couple ground rules. Number one, please make it a question, not a statement. Okay. Um, You may all have plenty of things to make as statements, but try to keep it a question. Keep it concise. Um, so that we can kind of keep the the focus of the conversation and thirdly most importantly uh, They'll know we're Christians by our love. Let's uh, let's pursue the path of gracious conversation Even if we may have very very deep differences of opinion. Okay, so uh, So keep it brief. So lots of other people get uh, get a chance first Go ahead
1: Thank you, John. That was great. great. Um,
2: okay. Who's next? Oh, no <laughs>
1: Um, I, I wanted to ask you a couple quick concise questions The first is an easy one Here's the softball What's your take on the genealogy that Luke gives for Jesus Which traces back to Adam and then says Adam is the son of God Some people say therefore Adam had no mother
2: Yeah, well, um, yeah, no, I don't think it says that. Uh, Certainly, the genealogy of Luke is important, and it shows us that Adam is the significant beginning of this line. Uh, The fact that Adam was chosen by God makes him a son of God, just like we are chosen by God and Abraham was chosen by God. They are the children of God chosen by him for their task.
1: My second question is, you mentioned the natural supernatural divide as an inappropriate set of categories for their mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the literal figurative or historical mythical uh, divide? Are, and how do those relate to your thinking on these yeah. texts?
2: Um, again, any of those categories, we have to be concerned whether we are imposing our categories on an ancient world. Again, issues from our cultural river that they're dragging, we're dragging into their cultural river. Uh, I don't think that they would have seen as much dif- distinction between mythical and historical as we do. And I say that uh, not to kind of give a blanket approval of mythology, but to recognize that mythology in the ancient world was the way that the people in the ancient world talked about those issues which were most deeply meaningful to them. They didn't look at their mythology and say, oh yeah, we know this is a bunch of baloney and nobody really believes this garbage. No, it it was the deepest truth they knew and believed. And so to that extent, both history and mythology in the ancient world were ways to address reality. And they wouldn't have prioritized one over the other. Okay, with literary categories, you have to ask what were they intending to do. And I try to stick by that. Yes.
1: Hi. To the author of Genesis 2, what would you say is the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That, you know, obviously that's like a whole lecture <laughs> question. But.
2: It is, but it's one I'm happy to give. No, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a tree of wisdom. We know that from a, a number of different directions. Uh, first of all, even in Genesis 3, Eve says she saw that the fruit was good to make one wise. Um, Secondly, we know it from just study of that phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, and how it's used in other places in the the Old Testament. And so it's a wisdom tree, and that's the significance that it has. Some people worry about that because they, they say, why would God forbid them to eat of a wisdom tree? Every place else in the Bible, wisdom's a good thing. And it is a good thing, but it's something that everyone recognizes has to be gained through a process, through a mentor through experiences. It's not something you can just snatch and get. And that's, that was the problem with it. It's how they chose to take it that was the difficulty. OK? I don't know if I answered what you were shooting for. Yes? Uh, given the archetypes account that you're using here, uh, can you say a little bit more about Sin in the Fall and kind of how, the, how that works with archetypes and how, that mm-hmm. sort of, uh, yeah. how that's significant for us? Yeah. Well, of course, I do believe that uh, since Adam and Eve, in my mind, are real people in a real past, that therefore the fall, what we call the fall, of course, the Bible never calls it the fall, uh, but the fall is something that happens at a point in time, not a process or anything of that sort. Now, we still have to sort out, okay, so. That being the case, just working from that premise, how does it get to everybody? How does everybody get affected by this? That's a great question and one we'd all love to have the answer for, and unfortunately the Bible never gives us that answer. The answers that we typically use are ones that the early Christian writers came up with. And I'm not saying that to dismiss it, it's just this is something that they tried to work out as best as they could. And we should also realize that the opinions on that were not monolithic. There are a variety of opinions about how sin spread and how it gets to all of us. Now, lots of the answers that they give and that are typical in Christian circles sound a lot like biology and genetics. You get it when you're born, you inherit it from your parents. They didn't know much about biology and genetics back then, even in early Christian history. Um, But that's what it sounds like, and we often morph it into that. But that's really not a very strong model. There's nothing like a sin gene that we inherit in our DNA. Uh, Some of the other models that existed in early Christian history uh, were things that were more like the idea of contamination or pollution that once it happens, it's out, and it affects the whole environment, you know? One person, at, maybe it's just one, let's say it was, one person made a mistake at Chernobyl, did something very wrong, and the, the nuclear catastrophe resulted, that affected everybody. The acts of one can affect not only all the people around, but the environment and everything of that sort. So there are other models. But again, the Bible doesn't give us a model, so all we can do is speculate about models.
0: Well, there we have it. That was the lecture, The Lost World of Adam and Eve by Dr. John Walton. This lecture was recorded at Highway Mountain View on February 1st, 2016. If you're interested in finding out more about Highway Community or Dr. John Walton, you can reach out at www.highway.org.